All right, let's talk about Virginia Woolf's novel, Mrs. Dalloway. Now, this is a very different novel in all kinds of ways from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Uh, It is different in style, different in tone, different in theme, and I think it gives you, juxtaposing those two novels can give you some sense of the development of the novel from the 19th century into the 20th century. Uh, Mrs. Dalloway takes place in a single day. Uh, There's not a lot of intricate plot action that happens in this story. Uh, Pride and Prejudice has a very meticulously designed plot. Uh, So did most 19th century novels. This one is not so interested in that. This is more interested in plumbing the psychological depths of the characters. Uh, and for that reason, the style is very different. We don't get a uh, an objective narrator. We get it's written in technically it is written in third person, same as Pride and Prejudice, but it keeps dipping into the psychologies of different characters, mainly into Mrs. Dalloway, but as we'll see, many other characters as well. Uh, and so it begins. You know, Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. Uh, for Lucy had her work cut out for her. The doors would be taken off their hinges. Rumpelmeyer's men were coming. And then, thought Clarissa Dalloway, what a morning, fresh as if issued to children on a beach. So the first thing we, we see here, the kind of, of uh, uh, style where we get these kind of flashes, we, we don't know who Lucy is. Now, the footnote in the Norton Anthology tells you that. But the readers of the original book didn't have that. So, wait, Lucy had her work. So, Lucy would usually buy the flowers, but now Mrs. Dalloway is going to do it. Uh, The doors are taking off their hinges. Uh, Rumpelmeyer's men uh, were coming. Uh, So, there's some big to-do happening. Uh, And it's a beautiful morning. You know, what a lark, what a plunge. And she also thinks about uh, the, uh, the French... She the French windows and plunged at at Burton into the open air. Uh, she mentions looking up until Peter Walsh said, uh, musing among the vegetables. Was that it? I prefer men to cauliflowers. Was that it? So instantly we go. We we're inside Clarissa Dalloway's head. She's thinking about what a beautiful morning it is, but she's also thinking about her childhood and a, a, a friend she had a long time ago, Peter Walsh, who becomes very important in the novel. Um, and she says he would be back from India one of these days. Uh, it turns out he will be very, very soon. Um, and then look at uh, the top of 2157. She stiffened a little on the curb, waiting for uh, Duntail's van to pass. A charming woman... Grope Purvis thought thought her, uh, knowing her as one does know people who live next door to one in Westminster. A touch of the bird about her, of the jay, blue-green, light, vivacious, though she was over fifty and grown very white since her illness. There she perched, never seeing him, waiting to cross, very upright. So now notice how in that paragraph we've shifted we're suddenly inside Scrope Purvis's head. Uh, we're seeing that he's a neighbor who sees uh, Clarissa, uh, and, and he says, you know, she has a touch of the bird about her, mentions her illness. Illness is a very important motif and theme throughout this novel. Uh, but we, we, we slide 
almost imperceptibly from what it's like inside Clarissa Dalloway's head to what it's like in Scrope Purvis's head. We get an outside view of her, but then uh, we uh, slide right back. For having lived in Westminster how many years now? Over 20? One feels even in the midst of the traffic or waking at night, Clarissa was positive, a particular hush or solemnity. So now we're back in Clarissa Dalloway's mind, and she hears Big Ben strike. Uh, now, the, uh, the, the time is very meticulously uh, indicated throughout the, uh, Mrs. Dalloway. In fact, uh, Virginia Woolf's working title for Mrs. Dalloway was The Hours. So we have the, the striking of Big Ben. Um, so we, we kind of establish the, the time. We also establish that uh, uh, it's life in London, and it's this moment of June. And she says, for it was the middle of June. The war was over, except for someone like Mrs. Foxcroft at the embassy last night, eating her heart out because that nice boy was killed, and now the old manor house was, must go to a cousin. Or Lady Bexborough, who opened a bazaar, they said, with the telegram in her hand. John, her favorite, killed. But it was over. Thank heaven. Over. Uh, so, we're in London. It's middle of June. It's after World War One, which is the war. And notice she's thinking, you know, uh, from Clarissa's point of view, well, the war is over. Oh, yeah, except it doesn't see, there seem to be ripple effects of the war. There are still tragedies that are going on from the war. And that will be another theme that becomes very important as the novel goes on. And we find out that uh, Clarissa is giving a party It's at the top of 2158. She says she's planning to kindle and illuminate to give her party. And she runs into a friend, Hugh Whitbread, uh, "'Good morning to you, Clarissa,' said Hugh, rather extravagantly, for they had known each other as children. "'Where are you off to?' "'I love walking in London,' said Mrs. Dalloway. "'Really, it's better than walking in the country.' They had just come up, unfortunately, to see doctors. Other people came to see pictures, to go to the opera, to take their daughters out. The Whitbreads came to see doctors. Time without number, Clarissa had visited Evelyn Whitbread at an, in a nursing home. Was Evelyn ill again?' Evelyn was a good deal out of sorts, said Hugh, uh, intimating by a kind of pout or swell of his very well-covered, manly, extremely handsome, perfectly upholstered body. He was almost too well-dressed always, but presumably had to be with his little job at the court, that his wife had some internal ailment, nothing serious, which, as an old friend, Clarissa Dalloway would quite understand without requiring him to specify. Ah, yes, she did, of course. What a nuisance. Now, notice that we're getting, we get a little fragment of dialogue, but we're getting a whole kind of conversation that goes on between them without getting the actual dialogue. Uh, a lot of what happens in Mrs. Dalloway is about kind of what goes between the lines, what they understand. So the actual words that they say are not as important as what they both understand from it. And there's a whole history here. They're up to see doctors. Well, Clarissa knows what that means. There's a whole history. Evelyn has been sick. Again, sickness comes in. Uh, she gets that, and we get the kind of the way that, you know, if you, if you just wrote down the conversation, we wouldn't catch all of that. But we go inside their heads, and we feel 
all of the background and the, the lived experience and the shared experience that they have together that informs that. And we kind of build up information about the characters. Now, in Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen will just come out and tell you things. You know, this is what happened. Uh, Virginia Woolf doesn't do that. She makes you kind of piece this together. We find out a little bit more about Peter Walsh, that uh, he had never, uh, to this day, forgiven her for liking him. So there was some kind of relationship there. Um, it talks on the next page how they how he scolded her, how they argued. So when they were younger, she knew him, they knew each other when they were younger, and they, they argued. Um, uh, so she would still find herself arguing in St. James Park, still making out that she had been right. And she had, too, not to marry him. So there was a, this was a potentially very serious relationship. She turned down an offer of marriage. For in marriage, a little license, a little independence, there must be between people living together day in and day out in the same house, which Richard gave her. Richard must be her husband, right? Richard gives her this, and she, him. Where was he this morning, for, in, this, for instance? Some committee? She never asked what. But with Peter, everything had to be shared, everything gone into, and it was intolerable. And when it came, uh, when it came to that scene in the little garden by the fountain, she had to break with him, or they uh, would have been destroyed. Both of them ruined. Now again, she doesn't tell us what the scene is. That's just creating suspense. We don't know about this, but also it's saying something about her relationships. Uh, Peter was too wanted to share too much. There was no independence. There was no space for herself. Uh, you know, when she thinks a couple needs to give each other the space, she doesn't know exactly where her husband is. She didn't ask. That's okay. But uh, Peter would have wanted to know every minute where she was. So she w wouldn't have been able to to deal with that. Again, we're slowly building this up. It's like the stream of her thoughts. Uh, this this technique is also been called stream of consciousness. Um, it's the idea of, of of mimicking the kind of flow of thoughts that you have in your head. Uh, if you ever stop and think about that, uh, about the way your thoughts go and the weird kind of connections you can make, it's it's very interesting. And I think uh, Virginia Woolf had obviously thought about that a lot and found ways to imitate that. Um, but we're introducing all of these characters mostly in Clarissa's memories, and an important one. Uh, comes up at the top of 2160, is Sally Seton, uh, a, a girl that she knew when she was younger, just as she knew Peter when she was younger. And look there at the near the top of 2160. Did it matter then, she asked herself, walking toward Bond Street? Did it matter that she must inevitably cease completely? All this must go on without her? Did she resent it, or did it not become consoling to believe that death ended absolutely, but that somehow in the streets of London, on the ebb and flow of things, here, there, she survived, Peter survived, lived in each other, she being part, she was positive of the, uh, positive of the trees at home, of the house there, ugly, rambling, all to, the, uh, to bits and pieces as it was, part of people she had never met, being laid out like a mist between the people she knew best, who lifted her on their branches as she had seen the trees lift the mist, but it spread ever so far, her life, herself, but 
What was she dreaming as she looked into Hatchard's shop window? What was she trying to recover? What image of white dawn in the country as she read in the book spread open, Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. This late age of the world's experience had bred in them all, all men and women, a well of tears, tears and sorrow, courage and endurance, a perfectly upright and stoical bearing. Now, this is a good example of this kind of the, the, the flow of consciousness here. She's having thoughts about her own mortality, but she's thinking, you know, she, she's enjoying this, but then it comes to think, you know, and it actually asks herself a question, does it matter that I'm going to die and not see any of this? Uh, but no, she believes she'll go on somehow, again, like a, like a mist, like a presence, something there. And this little snatch of poetry she remembers, fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Now this is, and again, a very common technique in modernist literature is to use these allusions to great literature to kind of give the reader extra information. So that is a quotation from Shakespeare, from one of his late plays called Cymbeline, and it's a song that was sung at the funeral of, of a character who was actually not dead. It turned out that they were just pretending to be dead. It's a whole long story, and I won't go into it. Uh, but the fear no more the heat of the sun nor the furious winter's rages is what they're saying to a man who's dead. He says, now you don't have to worry about the heat of the sun anymore. Um, you, you, you have passed all of those, those cares and those worries. Um, so, and this, these meditations on death and mortality come up again and again. And that image of fearing the heat of the sun, as we'll see, comes up repeatedly as well. And then she goes on thinking about Lady uh, Bexborough, and she contrasts herself with Lady Bexborough. She's uh, different from her. She admires Lady Bexborough uh, and wishes she could be like her, but she's very different. Um, and then we also get, on the, on the next page, she's thinking about Miss Kilman. Now, Miss Kilman is a friend of uh, uh, Mrs. Dalloway's daughter, Elizabeth, and Mrs. Dalloway does not like her. Um, she says that she had this religious, her religious ecstasy made uh, people callous. So did causes, dulled their feelings. For Miss Kilman would do anything for the Russians, starved herself for the Austri Austrians, but in private inflicted positive torture. So insensitive was she, dressed in a green Macintosh coat. Year in, uh, year in, year out, she wore that coat. She perspired. She was never in the room for five minutes without making you feel her superiority, your inferiority. So uh, this is another interesting technique of characterization. We're finding out a lot about Mrs. Dalloway by what she admires and what she dislikes. Uh, she likes the, the, the independence and, and uh, substantial nature of Lady Bexborough, she dislikes the, uh, the the callousness of Miss Kilman. Now, Miss Kilman is all for these great causes, uh, but in pursuing them, she just runs roughshod over people in her real life. Uh, again, that's telling us something about what Clarissa is like, what she, she wants. Now, finally, we get to the flower shop on 2162, uh, Mulberries, the florist. And she's talking to the lady in the florist, Miss Pym. It says uh, below the middle of the page on 2162. And 
As she began to go with Miss Pym from jar to jar, choosing nonsense, nonsense, she said to herself more and more gently, as if this beauty, this scent, this color, and Miss Pym liking her, trusting her, were a wave which she let flow over her and surmount that hatred, that monster surmount uh, in all. And it lifted her up, and when, oh, a pistol shot in the street outside. Dear, those motor cars, said Miss Pym, going to the window to look, and coming back, and smiling apologetically with her hands full of sweet peas, as if those motor cars, those uh, tires of motor cars, were all her fault. Uh, so we get this little moment. Again, she thinks, first of all, it's a pistol. Uh, a car is backfiring. Um, and we find out that it's a car uh, with the, the, the windows are, are covered, and they're not sure who's in it. And somebody saw a face of very greatest importance, so somebody very important, so maybe from the royal family, uh, says, but nobody knew whose face had been seen. Was it the Prince of Wales, the Queen's, the Prime Minister's? Whose face was it? Nobody knew. So, interestingly, somebody saw the face, but nobody knows what it is. And then we get another shift in the... Uh, the narrative. We go to Septimus Warren Smith. This is the top of 2163. Who found himself unable to pass. Heard him. Septimus Warren Smith, aged about 30, pale-faced, beak-nosed, wearing brown shoes and a shabby overcoat, with hazel eyes which had that look of apprehension in them, which makes complete strangers apprehensive too. The world has raised its whip, and where will it descend? Now that's like now we're inside of Septimus' head. Uh, the world has raised its whip. Where will it descend? Everything had come to a standstill. The throb of the motor engine sounded like a pulse irregularly drumming through an entire body. The sun became extraordinarily hot because the motor car had stopped outside Mulberry's shop window. Old ladies on the tops of omnibuses spread their black parasols. Here, uh, here a green, here a red parasol opened with a little pop. Mrs. Dalloway, coming to the window with her arms full of sweet peas, looked out uh, with her little pink face, pursed to inquiry. Everyone looked at the motor car. Septimus looked. Boys on bicycles sprang off. So here's this, this moment. Uh, they're all, everyone's attention is grabbed by this. Everything comes through the sun still. Notice that the sun became extraordinarily hot. Fear no more the heat of the sun. Uh, and we get, let us go on, Septimus said his wife, a little woman with large eyes and a sallow, pointed face, an Italian girl. But Lucretia herself could not help looking at the motor car and the tree patterns, pattern on the blinds. Was it the queen in there? The queen going shopping? The chauffeur, who had been opening something, turning something, shutting something, got on to the box. Come on, said Lucretia. But her husband, for they had been married four, five years now, jumped started and said, all right, angrily, as if she had interrupted him. Now, I think you can already begin to see that Septimus' reaction to this is very different from Clarissa's. Uh, she was startled by it. It seems to have had a much more profound effect on Septimus. He thinks about it like a whip cracking. His his wife he tells him to come on. He's, he he uh, it jumps like he's startled, you know, all right. He says, people must notice. People must see. People, she thought, now we're inside Lucretia's head. 
uh, looking at the crowd, staring at the motor car, the English people with their children and their horses and their clothes, which he admired in a way, but they were people now because Septimus had said, I will kill myself. An awful thing to say. Suppose they had heard him. She looked at the crowd. Help, help, she wanted to cry, cry out to butchers, boys, and women. Help. Only last autumn, she and Septimus had stood on the embankment, wrapped in the same cloak, and Septimus, reading a paper instead of talking, she had snatched it from him and laughed in the old man's face when he, who saw them. But failure one conceals. She must take him away into some park. So she's very worried and very self-conscious about Septimus, and he's made a, a suicide threat. I will kill myself. Uh, and she's she's actually noticed that she's more nervous that somebody might have overheard that than at the fact that he might kill himself. She's very worried about the, the, the perceptions of it rather than the, the, the fact of it. So we've been inside the heads of, of Septimus and his wife, Lucrezia, who's Italian. Um, and But then by the next page, we get back to Mrs. Dalway. It is probably the queen, thought Mrs. Dalway, coming out of mulberries with her flowers, the queen. And for a second, she wore a look of extreme dignity, standing there in the flower shop in the sunlight while the car passed at a foot's pace with its blinds drawn. The queen going to some hospital, the queen opening some bazaar, thought Clarissa. Uh, so she's pretty sure it must be the queen in, the, in this car. Nobody knows for sure, but they're all projecting. Uh, now, this is, uh, again, in some ways, this is just a common everyday incident. There's this, you know, today it would be a car with, you know, darkened windows. And, it, you know, it's a big limousine. It's important. Oh, I wonder who, who what celebrity is in there. Uh, but the fact that everybody assumes that it's somebody important, but nobody knows who it is, I think is thematically significant. This This book is very much about people looking at surfaces and not understanding what's beneath them. Uh, it's, in fact, the book itself allows us as readers to get beneath those surfaces, but to see that the characters in the story are, are locked outside of that. They can't see inside other people, uh, inside their thoughts, the way that we do in the, the this kind of stream of consciousness of the story. Um, so then we get the uh, we kind of follow the car and talk about the surface agitation of the passing car, um, gl- uh, 2165, gliding across Piccadilly, the car turned down St. James Street. And you can actually go on a map and trace out on the roads exactly where all of this happens. I mean, uh, Virginia Woolf was very careful to make this completely accurate uh, about where all the streets and the crossings and the shops and everything are. Uh, it's tall men of robust physique, well-dressed men with their tailcoats and their white slips and their hair raked back who, for reasons difficult to discriminate, were standing in the bow window of Brooks, with their hands behind their tails of their coats, looking out, perceived instinctively that greatness was passing, and the pale light of the immortal presence fell upon them as it had fallen upon Clarissa Dalloway. So now these these people, everyone who kind of sees this car knows it must be something important. Uh, we get uh, further down. A small crowd, meanwhile, had gathered at the gates of Buckingham Palace. Listlessly, yet confidently, poor people, all of them, they waited, looked at the palace itself with the flag flying at Victoria, billowing in her mound, 
admired her shelves of running water, her geraniums singled out from the motor uh, car in the mall, first this one, then that, bestowed emotion, vainly, upon commoners out for a drive, recalled their tribute to keep it unspent while this car passed and that, and all the time let rumor accumulate in their veins and the thrill and thrill the nerves in their thighs as the, the thought of royalty looking at them the queen bowing, the prince saluting, at the thought of the heavenly life divinely bestowed upon kings. Uh, so now we get kind of into the head of this group of people, this kind of these, these, these poor people who are kind of there around Buckingham Palace waiting for a glimpse of royalty. Um, so they're all doing it. We get some specific ones. We, we find uh, uh, Sarah Bet Bletchley, uh, Emily Coates, uh, the, the car coming on. And then in the middle of 2166, we get the sound of an airplane bored ominously into the ears of the crowd. There it was, coming over the trees, letting out white smoke from behind, which curled and twisted ac uh, acutely, writing something, making letters in the sky. Everyone looked up. So now we've got another moment. We got, had a moment when the, the car backfired, when all the attention was on this single, singular event. And now we've got another one. Everyone is looking at this this plane doing the sky riding. Uh, it said it was making letters, but what letters? And they all have different uh, opinions. Glaxo, uh, Crimo, uh, Toffee. Some people think they, you know that's an E. Uh, they hear notice that they hear the, the bell striking eleven, so we know it's this is at eleven o'clock. And notice that there's no agreement about what the letters are. Here again, uh, this is a, a thematically significant thing, that even w the, this group of people that perceive the, the very same thing can't agree what it is or what it means or what it signifies. Uh, that's another big theme in this book uh, about interpretation and the different interpretations that people with different points of view will have. Uh, and then we get back to... Lucretia, uh, page 2167. Lucretia Warren Smith, sitting by her husband's side as, on a seat in Regent's Park in the uh, broad walk, looked up. Look, look, Septimus, she cried, for Dr. Holmes had told her to make her husband, who ha had nothing whatever seriously the matter with him, but was a little out of sorts, take an interest in things outside himself. All right, so now... She, the doctor who says nothing is wrong with him, he is just a little out of sorts, but you're trying to draw himself out, draw him out, you know, to, to notice things. So, thought Septimus, now we're in his head, looking up, they are signaling to me. Not indeed in actual words, that is, he could not read the language yet, but it was plain enough. This beauty, this exquisite beauty, and tears filled his eyes as he looked at the smoke words languishing and melting in the sky and bestowing upon him their inexhaustible charity and laughing goodness, one shape after another of unimaginable beauty, and signaling their intention to provide him for nothing, forever, for looking merely with beauty, more beauty. Tears ran down his cheeks. So, again, there's something Septimus doesn't seem to have uh, what you might consider normal reactions to things. Uh, most people seeing skywriting don't look at it and cry at it being so beautiful. 
but he does. It's like it's even though he he doesn't even knows he can't even read it yet. But just the just the fact of it making these shapes in the air and it's just beautiful, so beautiful that it makes him cry. And then a little further down, happily, uh, Rija Lucrezia Rija put her hand with a tremendous weight on his knee so that he was weighted down, transfixed. Or the excitement of the elm trees rising and falling, rising and falling, with all their leaves alight, and the color thinning and thickening from blue to the green of a hollow wave, like plumes on horses' heads, feathers on ladies, so proudly they rose and fell, so superbly, would have sent him mad. But he would not go mad. He would shut his eyes. He would see no more. So... All of this, this stimulation, the the uh, the letters in the sky, uh, the 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 trees moving in the in the breeze, the the feel of his wife's hand on his uh, knee, is too much for them. He has to sh- close his eyes, shut it out, uh, or he'll just go crazy. Um, says, but they beckoned. Leaves were alive, trees were alive, and the leaves being connected by millions of fibers with his own body. There, on the seat, fanned it up and down when the branch stretched, he, too, made the state that statement. So he feels this deep connection, right? The sparrows fluttering, rising, and falling in jagged fountains were part of the pattern. The white and blue, barred with black branches, sounds made harmonies with premeditation. The spaces between them were as significant as the sounds. A child cried. Rightly far away, a horn sounded. All taken together meant the birth of a new religion. Septimus, said Rija. He started violently. People must notice. Uh, so he's acting kind of strange. And again, she's particularly worried because people are going to notice. You're, you're freaking out here. Um, at the top of uh, 2168. For she could stand. I, I'm going to walk to the fountain and back. For she could stand it no longer. Dr. Holmes might say there was nothing the matter, for rather would she that he were dead. She could not sit beside him when he stared so and did not see her and made everything terrible. Sky and tree, children playing, dragging carts, blowing whistles, falling down, all were terrible. And he would not kill himself. And she could tell no one. Septimus has been working too hard. That was all she could say to her own mother. Um, so now we find out that, you know, that, uh, he would not kill himself, but Septimus had fought. So he's a veteran of World War One. He was brave. He was not Septimus now. She put her uh, on her lace collar. She put on her new hat and he never noticed. And he was happy without her. Nothing could make her happy without him. Nothing. He was selfish. So men are for he was not ill. Dr. Holmes had said there was nothing the matter with him. She spread her hand before her. Look, her wedding ring slipped. She had grown so thin. It was she who suffered, but she had nobody to tell. Um, so we find out, you know, again, she's from Italy. She left her family to be with him. Uh, she married him in, in Italy. Um and now has come to England and feels very isolated and alone. We're getting into her head, and, and she's... She's confused, you know, she says, there's nothing wrong with him. Uh, the doctors say so. Um, you know, he, he's just being selfish. Uh, you know, uh, 
we get again really inside of her head and her dealing with this and not understanding that obviously he's got some deep psychological problems, uh, most probably because of the war. And so we get her internal monologue here. You know, I am alone. I am alone. Um, and it says she was his wife, married uh, years ago in Milan, his wife, and would never, never tell that he was mad. So she's trying to convince herself that he's not crazy, but she kind of knows that he is. There's something wrong with him. And then we, we snap back into Septimus's point of view. Men must not cut down trees. There is a God. He noted such revelations on the back of envelopes. Change the world. No one kills from hatred. Make it known, he wrote it down. He waited. He listened. A sparrow perched on the railing opposite chirped, Septimus, Septimus, four or five times, over, and went on, drawing its notes out to sing freshly and piercingly in Greek words how there is no crime, and joined by another sparrow, they sang in voices prolonged and piercing in Greek words from trees in the, in the meadow of life beyond a river where the dead walk, how there is no death. Okay, so he's, now he's is almost hallucinating here the the sound of the sparrow sounds like his name then he imagines them speaking greek uh talking about death um he says there was there was his hand there the dead so he's looking he sees now is my hand and there are the dead white things were assembling behind the railings opposite he dared not look evans was behind the railings "'What are you saying?' said Reza, uh, suddenly, sitting down by him. Interrupted again. She was always interrupting. Um, so now, again, who, it doesn't, Evans, who the hell is Evans? Uh, it sounds like he's somebody who's dead. Uh, so we understand that he's definitely disturbed here. Uh, he's not responding to the world around him in a, a rational way. And his wife keeps telling him to look, look, look. Said Dr. Holmes had told her to make, uh, make him notice real things. Go to a music hall, play cricket. That was the very game, Dr. Holmes said. Uh, a, niece out of, a nice out-of-doors game. The very game for her husband. Look, she repeated. And then we get into Septimus's head. Look, the unseen bade him. The voice which now communicated with him, who was the greatest of mankind, Septimus, lately taken from life to death, the Lord who had come to renew society, who lay like a coverlet, a snow blanket smitten only by the sun, forever unwasted, suffering forever, the scapegoat, the eternal sufferer. But he did not want it. He moaned, putting from him with a wave of his hand, that eternal suffering, that eternal loneliness. Look, she repeated, for he must not talk aloud to himself out of doors. Oh, look, she implored him, but what was there to look at? A few sheep, that was all. Um, so, he, again, he's, he's talking to himself. He's getting trapped in his head. He's having these uh, uh, conversations, um, and they don't quite make sense. You get this... Uh, you know, the snow blanket smitten only by the sun. Um, this uh, It's very poetic, but it doesn't have, have a rational, clear meaning. We just get the sense that he is quite literally disturbed. Uh, 
so then, but then the 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 story switches back to another point of view. The bottom of twenty one sixty nine. Um, both seemed queer. Maisie Johnson thought everything seemed very queer. In London, for the first time, come to take up a post at her uncle's in, in Leadenhall Street. Uh, and now, walking through Regent's Park in the morning, this couple on the chairs gave her quite a turn. A young woman, seeming foreign, the man looking queer, so that she should be very old. She would still remember and make it jangle again among her memories how she had walked through Regent's Park on a fine summer morning fifty years ago. For she was only nineteen and had got her way at last to come to London. And now, how queer it was, this couple that had asked uh, the way of, and that she had asked the way of, and the girl started and jerked her hand, and the man, he seemed awfully odd, quarreling, perhaps, parting forever, perhaps, something was up, she knew, and now all these people, for she returned to the uh, the broad walk, the stone basins, the prim flowers, the men and the women, invalids, most of them, in bath chairs, all seemed, after Edinburgh, so queer. Um, so, again, we're, we're getting into his other, this 19-year-old girl, her first time in London, but it gives us a chance to see the uh, Septimus and his wife from the outside, Septimus and Lucretia, the, the foreign wife, uh, the, the strange, queer behavior of, of Septimus. And notice that Maisie misinterprets what's going on. She thinks that they're they're quarreling, that they're parting forever. Well, that's not exactly what's going on. But again, in, in this book, a lot of times people don't understand really what's going on in somebody else's head. Um, and then we get another uh, consciousness in the middle of 2170. That girl, thought Mrs. Dem- Dempster, uh, who saved crusts for the squirrels and often ate her lunch in Regent's Park, didn't know a thing yet. So now she's thinking about Maisie, and we get a picture of that. And we get, uh, again, the return to the airplanes. And looking at that, the top of uh, 2171, away and away the airplane shot till it was nothing but a bright spark, an aspiration, a concentration, a symbol. So it seemed to Mr. Bentley vigorously rolling his strip of turf at Greenwich, a man of soul, of his determination, uh, of man's soul, of his determination, thought Mr. Bentley, sweeping around the cedar tree to get outside his body, beyond his house, by means of thought, Einstein, speculation, mathematics, the Mendelian theory, away the airplane shot. So he sees the airplane as this, again, this symbol of uh, determination, man's soul, uh, higher aspirations. And so we get in this section several different voices. The, the, The narrative will dip into different consciousnesses and give us their perspective on things and, and let us kind of piece it all together. Now, you'll notice this is a very similar technique to what T.S. Eliot did in The Wasteland. Uh, I think it's a little bit less opaque than what Eliot was doing, but it's the same idea uh, that you kind of build up a picture of the world by inhabiting different points of view within it. Uh, And also it's shown us that people have radically different points of view of the same thing, uh, whether it's the car backfiring or what letter the the plane is writing, uh, the way that you know, Septimus 
seems to have very a very different internal life than his wife is able to understand. She can't reach him. Um, and if you remember, the, the reason that uh, Clarissa Dalloway said she didn't want to marry Peter was that there would be no private space. You know, she would, wouldn't give him a room of her, you know room for to herself. And here we have uh, Lucretia desperately trying to get into Septimus's private space and not being able to. So those kinds of echoes and correspondences go on throughout the novel as well. All right. Well, I hope as you go on in the novel, you kind of will, uh, now that you've kind of gotten the feeling for how Virginia Woolf is telling the story, that you'll be able to pick up on these things and notice she doesn't give a lot of overt signals of when she's moving from one consciousness to another. Uh, but often, you know, she will she will tell the character and say, they thought so and so. And that should be a signal to you, a little flag. Okay, we're now we're in this character's head. Uh, and in the next section that we're going to read, uh, it's pages uh, 2171 through 2191, so the next 20 pages of the book, uh, we're going to see Clarissa Dalway not out in in London, but in her own house. And we're going to get more memories of her past, and particularly the relationships she had with people she knew when she was young. Look at the two major relationships are with Peter and Sally. And think about the, the similarities and differences between those two relationships. We're also going to meet Peter. Uh, he, will, he will come in and we will spend quite a bit of time in his head as well. And think about how he is different from the other characters that we looked at, how he's different from, uh, from Clarissa, how he's different from Septimus, uh, what his kind of worldview or contribution to all of this is. All right, well, thank you for your attention. And we will talk about the next section of Mrs. Dalloway next time.